We are this morning in Isaiah chapter 11 in a short Advent series, a Christmas series that I've titled Christmas in Isaiah. The story of Christ's birth, the coming of Christ, and what He would do for sinners like us is told across the book of Isaiah. We'll be this morning in Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. Please follow along as I read. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness the belt of his loins. Let's pray together once more. Our Father in heaven, you have in mercy and compassion and in extraordinary condescension revealed yourself to man, revealed yourself to sinners like us. You have written the story of redemption across the face of the Scriptures. We pray this morning that we would come to appreciate that history better that we would see what you have been doing in redemptive history to bring about our redemption and our salvation, uh, to bring about the coming of your own Son into the world to be our Savior and our Lord for all those who turn to Him in repentance and faith. We pray that your word would appear more lovely to us this morning. What you have done in sovereignty and in providence and in creation and in redemption would appear more awesome and mighty and glorious to us this morning. Uh, Please, Lord, seal your word to our hearts as we hear it preached. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you parachute into Isaiah 11.1, so do the old kind of flip the book open to anywhere you land in Isaiah 11.1, you just drop into this statement, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. If that's what you do, and you know nothing by way of background and context, you're going to be thoroughly confused. Uh, It's a little bit like entering a conversation at noon that started at 9 o'clock. It would be like watching the Lord of the Rings films and starting with the two towers, the second of the three, which would admittedly be thoroughly confusing. Uh, Who's this monkey-looking guy in a loincloth? Why is he trying to kill these little people? What in the world is going on, right? You don't have context. You don't have the beginning of the story. You don't know where you are in the history. And therefore, you can't understand what's going on in this particular scene. Isaiah 11.1 takes up one of the most important promises in the Bible. The promise that God would bring a king who would rule over his people and indeed over the whole world. Now, the history of the Israelite people and the monarchy, the crown, kingdom uh, is a sordid tale uh, with lots of different plot twists. What I'd like to do this morning is walk us through that history 
and show you its relationship to this passage in Isaiah 11.1 and to Christmas itself, and then to draw out a few lessons for us. And I'll just say on a personal note, when I uh, determined to preach this passage in Isaiah 11.1 and to talk about how Christmas brings the coming of the King, I had a very different notion of what I would be preaching this morning. I thought that I would be meditating primarily on uh, Christ's kingly rule and its implications for our lives and the need for all of us to come under His reign and submit our lives to Him. And that is indeed a biblical theme, a glorious theme that we must understand and embrace. All of us must bow the knee to Jesus as Lord. Jesus is King. But as I was preparing this week, another emphasis in this story in redemptive history of what God is doing with His people and this King seemed to shout out to me and call out to me, and I hope I'm being responsive to the leading of God's Spirit and going with this other theme that I think will become apparent as I preach. I'd like us to consider the history of Israel and the King in terms of six plot movements. Plot movement number one, God establishes Himself as King over His creation. God establishes Himself as King over His creation. We start by going back to the very beginning. First, we should note that at the creation, God was to be king over His people. God was to be king over His people. He created Adam and Eve, and He was to rule over them in a benevolent rule of righteousness, peace, and love. And they, in turn, were to serve as His sort of vice-regents, as sort of lesser kings under the great king, exercising dominion over the creation and ultimately under His sovereign care and His sovereign oversight. Now, of course, you know, if you know anything about the Bible, that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And their sin amounted ultimately to a rejection of God's rule over His people. When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, they broke God's royal law, and they were banished from God's presence, from God's kingdom, and put outside God's garden temple. However, even there, there was a promise that was made in Genesis 3.15, that God would undertake to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. God is going to bring conflict, spiritual conflict, between the line of the woman, the offspring of the serpent, of the wicked one. And God promises that there will be a particular offspring raised up, a particular son who will come from the line of Eve, from the line of the woman. And this offspring, this son, would conquer Satan. He would crush the serpent's head. So we see, even in the very beginning, this idea of a royal son that would come, the idea is planted in seed form there in Genesis 3.15. Okay, second plot movement. God establishes Himself as king over His people, Israel. He establishes Himself as king over His creation, but He established Himself in a special way as king over His people, Israel. Now fast forward through the Genesis narrative. God brings to life the nation of Israel through Abraham. They will be His special people. Now, after the period of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and after Joseph, God's people, as I hope you know, are brought into slavery in Egypt. They are now under Pharaoh's rule. Well, what does God do? God raises up Moses, the prophet, and through him, God delivers them and leads them out of Egypt. He destroys Pharaoh and his armies and brings his people out of slavery and out of bondage. And then in Exodus 15, a glorious passage, we have the famous Song of Moses. 
uh, for the first few years of our church's life together, we sang a song written by a man named Aaron Keyes called The Song of Moses, which draws on a lot of lines from the song in Exodus 15. We're actually bringing that back in the new year, everybody, so we'll be singing The Song of Moses again. Uh, Gus Lund at our evening gathering last week encouraged us in Thanksgiving from the Song of Moses in Exodus 15, which is all about the warrior king, the warrior God who triumphs over the kings of this world on behalf of his people. And there's the refrain at the end of the song, the Lord will reign forever and ever, a line that is picked up in subsequent psalms later on. When God enters into covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, he makes clear that he alone, God alone, will be king over his people. Israel will submit to him and to him alone. God will be their king, he will be their God, and they will be his people. All right, plot movement number three. Plot movement number three. The people of Israel reject God as their king and ask for a king like those of the nations. The people of Israel reject God as their king and to ask for a king like those of the nations. Israel does not continue in a posture of submission to God, their king. Israel proves to be rebellious and proves to be fickle, proves to be sinful. Please turn, if you were, to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel King's Chronicles, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. If you're looking in the Pew Bibles, it's page 230. Turn to 1st Samuel chapter 8. After Moses dies and Joshua leads the people into the promised land, you have the period of the judges, roughly 336 years, and the people repeatedly commit sin against God and rebel against His commands. It is a dark period in Israel's history, and eventually, in an act of sinful rebellion, Israel demands a king over them so that they can be like the other nations. We're not happy with our situation, the situation God has put us in. They go to the prophet Samuel and say, give us a king so that we can be like the other nations of the world, the pagan nations of the world. Look at 1 Samuel 8, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. What a line. The God who created them, the God who made them into a people, the God who brought them out of slavery in Egypt, the God who set himself up as their king, God says, do what they want. They have rejected me as their king. Verse 8, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them, show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And then over the next several verses, Samuel issues a warning to the people, you're not going to like having a king over you like the kings of the other nations. They're going to take your daughters and your sons. They're going to get in all kinds of wars and conflicts. It's not going to go well for you. And then we read verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. 
And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Let's be clear what's going on here. This represents wholesale rejection of and rebellion toward Israel's covenant God. They are rejecting God, rebelling against God. They want to be like the nations. Well, what happens? They get Saul. And Saul proves to be a wicked man. And God rejects Saul. And Saul brings shame and reproach and agony upon the nation. Then they get David. David is a righteous man. David is a man after God's own heart. He is a great king and one who serves in the fear of God. But David is also a sinner. He's the one who wrote Psalm 51, which we sang as a confession of sin. He fails in miserable ways, and he too will bring reproach upon the monarchy and upon the nation through his sin. He will not be able to save God's people. But David is not meant to be a savior for the people. God actually comes to David and promises that he is going to bring a son, a royal savior, from David's line. This leads to plot movement number four. Hope you're tracking with me. Plot movement number four. God promises a coming king and savior who will rule over his people forever. God promises a coming king and savior who will rule over his people forever. God enters into a covenant with David. Recorded for us in 1 Chronicles 17 and 2 Samuel 7. God makes a promise to this king over Israel. I won't read the entirety of those passages and you don't need to turn there. I'll just read one relevant section out of 1 Chronicles 17 verse 11. Here's the promise of the coming son, the coming king. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. What's being promised here? There will come offspring from David, a son from his line, and this son will reign forever, and he will have a glorious rule. He will establish justice and peace and deliverance and salvation in all the world. He will be king not over, only over his people Israel, but indeed over all the nations. And he will rule in righteousness. And he will bring shalom for the people. And he will be the fulfillment of all the hopes and expectations of sinful Israel. He will be their savior. He will be their king. He will be their God. This promise, this promise of a coming one, of a coming king, drives the rest of the biblical narrative and the rest of redemptive history. It's actually driving redemptive history right now. Plot movement number five. Israel's king and kingdom fall into disrepute. Kids, uh, to fall into disrepute means things go really bad. Okay? Brings shame. Israel's king and kingdom fall into disrepute. So God makes this covenant with David, and many expect the monarchy simply to continue in perpetuity after David. It seems very clear, if you read the biblical record, the way they see this playing out is that there's always going to be a king on the throne in perpetuity forever. And so Israel doesn't have the spiritual and psychological resources to comprehend the monarchy coming to an end, or 
no longer having a king on the throne in Israel. They expect the monarchy simply to continue in perpetuity after David, but that's, of course, not what happens. The monarchy spirals out of control after David. Very quickly, we come to realize Solomon, David's son, will not be the promised son envisioned in the Davidic promise, the Davidic covenant. He will not be the promised deliverer king for the people. Solomon is also an imperfect man with glaring flaws. He also himself apostatizes, at least for a time. His sons also after him go on to fail in heinous ways. They commit great wickedness against the Lord, and they eventually divide the kingdom into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And in this context, in this setting, God's law is routinely dishonored, His worship is profaned, and His holiness is offended. Eventually, God judges His people Israel, and they are carried away into exile. Israel, who had rejected God as king and called for a king to rule over them like the pagan nations, will be brought into captivity due to the many failings of their kings and to their sins as a nation. And what happens is the monarchy, the crown, the king, is brought into disrepute, and the whole kingdom is subject to judgment and to exile and to captivity. The crown lies in the dustbin. No king on the throne. No palace in Jerusalem. The temple, the center for God's worship and God's presence, a sign of blessing among the people. The temple is destroyed. It's an ash heap. The nation is exiled in bondage, no longer in the land. They have rejected God as king, and in the end, it appears God is rejecting them. But now here's the problem. What about the promise? What about what God said He would do? What about the son who would reign on David's throne and over his house forever? What about the Savior King? What happened to the promise? What happened to what God had said? All right, this brings us back to Isaiah. Isaiah foretells the judgment that is going to come on the nation. We saw this last week. God's going to raise up Assyria, northern superpower, to overflow and to conquer the northern kingdom. God's going to raise up Babylon 150 years later to overwhelm the southern kingdom. He's going to raise up the Persians after that. God's going to judge His people. He's going to bring them into captivity. Isaiah's telling us about this judgment. It's a gloomy picture. We talked about last week how the nation will be thrust into deep darkness. We don't have time to read. We finished in Isaiah 9-7 last time, really Isaiah 9-2. But if you were to read on in Isaiah 9 and into chapter 10, the picture looks very bleak, very gloomy. God is going to judge His people Israel, and it's going to be terrible. God says, all that's left for you, Israel, is to lie among the slain of the earth, to act like you're dead. That's all you have left when I'm done with my judgment. And then He says, but don't think Assyria is going, going to get away with this. I'm going to judge Assyria wicked nation that would subject my people. And the image that he uses is very evocative, quite striking. 